I'd like you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you will, follow along as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at great implications of our justification, which also began for us a new section here in the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8. Verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5 show us these great implications, of which we discovered the first three last time, didn't we? Namely, number one, we have, because of this justification, been given peace with God. Secondly, we have been given participation within the sphere of grace And thirdly, we have been given the praiseworthy hope of future glory. The Apostle Paul initially sets out these three great implicative realities of our justification. Peace, participation, and praiseworthy hope. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in this text to speak of more great implications of our justification. For instance, notice with me another great implication from verses 3 to 5. More than that, he says, more than those three great realities he's just given us, peace, participation, and praiseworthy hope, or peace, grace, and hope, more than that, if indeed we could say there is anything more than that, he does, he says, more than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, or hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What great implication To our justification is this. We could see a fourth implication. And Paul speaks of it in these verses. And we could say it like this. We have been given a production of godly character through suffering. You see, not only do we have peace with God, not only do we have a participation within the sphere or the realm of God's grace, not only do we have a praiseworthy hope of future glory, but we also have a production of godly character through suffering. In other words, Paul is teaching us that one of the great truths about our justification, our right standing with God, is that it does something so significant within us. 
It's not just something that's declared about us. It is something that also becomes true of us. I should remind us that one of the chief criticisms of the Reformation of the 16th century by the Roman Catholic Church was that the Reformers were simply spouting some legal fiction, they said, when they said a man was declared righteous by God and that that righteousness was wholly outside of himself. Martin Luther, as you remember, and others said that a man's righteousness was an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself. And Rome said, oh, that's just more legal fiction. You're just declaring something about a man, you reformers, but you're not really saying anything about a man changing. But the reformers repudiated such a view by maintaining that while a man's righteousness must must come to him purely and only as a gift, and therefore it did change his status with God, it did not, however, leave a man unchanged within his character. God, after having declared a man righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross... Also, immediately upon the heels of that declaration began actually to work to change that righteously declared person from the inside out. He didn't simply say about someone who'd been declared righteous by believing in in Christ that they had a mere status change. Not at all. He is at that point based on His declaration, by faith, alone in Christ, going to see God work in His heart immediately upon the heels of that declaration. There's going to be no time lapse. A person who is declared righteous by God is going to start the process of becoming righteous. The the Reformers were fond of saying this, Justification is by faith alone, but it is a faith that is never alone. You see the point? The Reformers believed that justification absolutely was a declaration by God through faith alone. But that faith was never alone. It was never God saying, now you're my child, and then that child was never changed never brought into conformity to Christ. Justification indeed is by faith alone, apart from works of any kind. You cannot work your way into being accepted by God. But once God declares a man righteous in His sight through the work of Christ alone, He begins to make that man righteous in His heart, in His life. It is by faith alone, but it is a faith that is never alone. You don't come to Christ for justification only. You come to Christ, you're brought to Christ by God also for your sanctification, your holiness of life. And you will be changed if you're a true believer. You will be. The reformers were accused by Rome of antinomianism. That word meaning an attitude against the law of God, not obeying the law of God. That is, once you're declared righteous by God, your character would be left unchanged. Not so, the reformers replied. Not so. God declares a man righteous solely through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But immediately God takes that justified person and begins to produce in him a character that throughout his Christian life is being made more progressively just like Jesus Christ. And that's where verses 3 to 5 of Romans 5 come in. That would be, my friends, a beloved text of the Reformers to refute what Rome was saying about them. This would be a chief text that they would appeal to in affirming the truth that this justified faith is not alone. Notice how Paul develops his argument here. The justified person... And I refer to the Christian in this way because of what Paul says about us in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, isn't that interesting? More than peace with God, 
more than participating and living and breathing in a state of grace, and more than the praiseworthy hope of future glory, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And of course, someone is going to come right along and say, I love those first three. I'm not so sure about the fourth one. Rejoicing in my sufferings? Oh, I love the fact that I have peace with God. I rejoice in the concept that I'm participating in the whole realm or state of grace. And I so praise God that one day I will have the hope of glory. But rejoice in His sufferings now? That's a great implication of justification? Surely not. But it is. More than what he has just said in verses 1 and 2, more than these things, we rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds like a contradiction in terms. The juxtapositioning of the concepts of rejoicing and suffering as working in tandem? Are we Christian masochists? Do we enjoy suffering? Do we look forward to punishment? Are we into pain? No, not in that sense at all. However, Paul brings us to the place of incredible understanding by teaching us that we as Christians, and only as Christians, I might add, only as Christians, no other religion, no other faith, no other, no other philosophy, no other teaching, Only Christianity teaches us that you can rejoice in your suffering because of what it produces. That's the key. That's the key. Look at what he's teaching here in verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. You remember that we saw last time that our justification brings this peace and grace and hope that I've mentioned. And here in this great next implication, Paul teaches that a suffering produces a progression of three realities out of the crucible of that suffering. Endurance, character, and hope. And we must take some time to speak of these great realities which come to us through our suffering. Why? Because if we can grab a hold of these truths, we will be able to rejoice even in the most severe suffering we could experience. The most severe. Not the least severe. The most severe. And in fact, the most severe, the greater the rejoicing. And conversely, if you don't grab a hold of these truths, you will not understand nor affirm one of the great implications of your Christian life, your justification. And it will likely be that you will reject suffering from the hand of God as something to be feared or even worse, something from which you blame or accuse God of mistreatment. Now let's look, therefore, at what Paul is driving toward here when he speaks of a rejoicing in our sufferings. Before we can even understand these progressions which suffering produces, we need to understand what Paul means by the word sufferings themselves. Do you see it listed there? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Some of your Bibles will have the word tribulations. The Greek word is flipsis. Flipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Flipsis. And it's a general word, of course, which means sufferings, tribulations, afflictions, Or the English word I like, pressures. Pressures. It has to do with the external pressure which is applied to the life. And it doesn't so much have the idea of sickness or pain or sorrow or grief, although at times it might include some of those things by way of byproduct. But it has to do with the pressure of living in this world, hostile to Christianity, hostile to us. It's not talking so much about the inconveniences of life, but of real hardship, real danger, antagonism, persecution, harassment. 
That's what Paul's driving toward here. This is not a sore knee or a hangnail or putting up with an in-law. Nothing like that. It's not talking about things like that. This concept from Paul is talking about actual seasons of pressure associated with being a Christian in a non-Christian world, in a sin-cursed world, which is antithetical to the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And in the midst of the pressure of this sin-cursed world, Paul says we rejoice. Actually, it is the same word with which he has just used it in verse 2 about rejoicing, exulting, boasting. And believe it or not, he's saying, therefore, exulting, boasting, rejoicing in these pressures. You say, what? Rejoicing in the pressures, that's what he says, boasting in my sufferings, exulting in my sufferings, that's precisely what he's teaching. And that is, by the way, I don't use nor do I like the word stress or the world's other word for dealing with stress, cope. I don't appreciate that, coping with stress. We're not those who cope with stress. We don't just cope in this life. We don't just sort of marginally get along. We rejoice, he says. That's a great implication of your justification. It's a great implication of your Christian life. Not to just cope with stress, but to rejoice. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in your sufferings. To boast in real, tangible pressure. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. This is what I'm talking about. This is not coping under stress. Don't buy the world's terminology. Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I can deal with that which is in the here and now because I await that which is to come. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's talking about a justified person. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What an inter-Trinitarian truth that God has elected us, that the Spirit seals us, and that Christ indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'd say those are pressures. Those are pressures. But notice, is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? Even quoting this passage from the Old Testament, for your sake we are being killed all day long. I'd say that's the ultimate pressure. Being killed, being persecuted for the faith up to death, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says yet in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What are we? Copers? No, we're conquerors. This word could be translated, we are super conquerors. Super conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is not coping with the stress of life. This is being a super conqueror, even if that means you give up your life for Christ. That's what it's talking about. The love of God. The joy of knowing Christ, regardless of what the plan is for your life, even your suffering. 
Did not Jesus Himself say such a thing in the Blessed Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Another text. Rejoice. Rejoice in your sufferings. Did not Jesus Himself say also in John chapter 15 these wonderful words to His disciples and therefore by secondary application to us? John 15 verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. Here's the plan. I'm God. I'm God in human flesh. I know the plan. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you think you're in this alone, think again. It hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Speaking to his own apostles, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. A godless world, a hostile world against the truth. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. We're not saying that there's a giddiness in our suffering. There will be at times weeping. There will be at times a lamenting. But the world will rejoice. In other words, it will be switched. Sometimes you will be weeping and they will be rejoicing. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into what? Joy. Joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You ever notice that reality? You've been there even in the delivery room. All of that pain, all of that agony. But as soon as that baby is there, there are tears, tears of joy, tears of gladness. He says, verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. Oh, what a truth. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And even in the first part, of the early church in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 even when they were speaking of Christ the very thing that Christ had promised them was happening to them Acts chapter 5 verse 41 then they left the presence of the council that is the council of the religious leaders of Israel who flogged them and beat them and told them not to preach Christ But notice their response. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is that what you do? Is that how you respond? Every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Even in the face of intense persecution and suffering and even by a man named Saul who was holding the coats while Stephen himself was finding just that, his death, his martyrdom. And they were just rejoicing, rejoicing. Luke says that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Look at Acts chapter 14. You want to see how all of these ideas and themes about suffering And rejoicing come into play. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's suffering. 
Some even believe that he did die and he was raised from the dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Rose up being the word sometimes used for resurrection. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, some of the same places in which they had been persecuted severely. What was the purpose? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Rejoicing, encouraging. It's a guilt edge guarantee, many tribulations for those who enter the kingdom of God. You remember the Apostle Paul's battle with the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Some believing it was physical, others believing that it was a person, an actual human being, maybe even one of the leaders in the church at Corinth. But he, Christ, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast. I will exult all the more gladly, rejoicingly, of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'll gladly boast. Lord, you're not going to take it away. Three times I entreated you. You have a a different plan, a greater plan, a higher plan. I'm not going to buck you again. I'm not going to ask you again. I'm not going to plead with you again. Because you said my grace is sufficient for you. You know what Jesus is saying there? I won't take away the suffering. I'll increase the grace. Wow. What a tremendous reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as, it, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. We, we just rejoice. We boast. We exult. In the churches of God, not just for your steadfastness of faith, but also for all these persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Does anyone, could anyone forget James 1? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you are encountering various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Consider it all what? Joy. Joy. Leon Morris writes, Sufferings or afflictions is a strong term. It does not refer to minor inconveniences, but to real hardships. No one likes troubles of this kind, but they may be seen as difficulties to be overcome, as ways of opening up new possibilities. One who sees them in this light glories in them. Do you glory in your suffering? You rejoice in your suffering. I was talking recently with a pastor friend out in California who gave me an amazing story about what has recently happened to him. He was doing some counseling with a couple. Pretty soon after that counseling had begun, the wife began to say, I have some suspicions about my husband and possible abuse of our children, maybe even sexual And he began to counsel both of them, talk with them, talk through those things, try to determine the validity of such a claim, serious. And in the midst of that, the wife even began to say, you know, I'm so profiting from this counsel that I'm just wondering if I could possibly bring in a, an, an audio tape and tape uh, these counseling sessions. And the pastor didn't see that that was a problem, so he agreed to do that. Sometime after the counseling had ended, she formally accused her husband of abuse, reported him to the police. He is now on trial for such abuse, and 
there appears to be no particular compelling factual evidence to support such a claim. And when I was talking to my pastor friend about it, I said, how's that going? What's going on? And he said, well, I've just received myself the, the news that I am also going to be tried for not reporting this based upon someone's interpretation of California law. And so, next month, he'll stand trial for failure to report and intimidation of a witness, namely the wife, who was subsequently, after the council, refusing to respond in obedience to God and was disciplined from the church. And the church ultimately found out that she was in attendance on the night of that fourth step of discipline and was in the back videotaping the entire scene. And it appears as though all of that has been orchestrated by her to set up this pastor and this church. You say, well, it's probably not going to be uh, anything major. There are two misdemeanor counts. One, failure to report carrying a six months in jail term and a $1,000 fine. And the other one as well, six months in jail, $1,000 fine. I said to my pastor friend, how are you responding to this? How are you getting up under the pressure. He said, Lance, I can tell you what. He said, this has been the most traumatic, the most serious thing that's ever happened to me in my life, but it has made me the most dependent upon God of anything in the history of my Christian life. I'm trusting God like I never have before. I'm praying like I never have before. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Rejoicing in my suffering. Talked with another pastor. Called me and sought advice. He's a solid young brother in the Lord. Newly pastor of a church in Georgia. Contacted me. Then he sent me a document for which he is also being sued. Put into court for his doctrine. Believe it or not. What he teaches. And people who don't like it and who want to take back the leadership of the church... Small faction in the church want the leadership back because they don't like him, they don't like his doctrine, and so they've taken him to court over issues about the constitution of the church and their ability, their belief that they can take over the church again. And so he's had to go to court. He's had to actually sit in the chair with the judge amidst the people and give an account of himself. He called and said, I need your help. I need your advice. Just two examples, even in our own country, of that which is become, becoming increasingly more hostile to Christianity. And you see, if you look at your sufferings, you look at your afflictions, you look at the pressures of life, if you, if you as Leon Moore said, I'm going to look at those as ways of opening possibilities. What's God going to do? This is exciting. This is an opportunity for me to trust God as I have never trusted Him before. And I am bound and determined. Yes, I am commanded to rejoice in them. I'm going to rejoice. Yes, in everything, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. You're not coping with stress. You're a super conqueror in Christ, regardless of what God chooses to do in your life. And notice... This is what God does through this rejoicing in the midst of pressure. Three things. Look at it. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces those three things. Endurance, character, and hope. Do you want those things? Do you want to see those things as a reality in your life? It comes through the path of suffering. It comes through the path of suffering. Just like... Last week when we studied peace and grace and hope, the triad here is our rejoicing in suffering which produces endurance, character, and hope. And please don't miss that wonderful word in Romans 5, knowing. Knowing. You can know. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, character, and hope. What is endurance? Hupamane. It's the spiritual fortitude 
which you gain by bearing up underneath the weight of suffering. That's what it means. You are bearing up underneath the weight of the suffering. You're not cracking under the pressure. It has to do with being toughened up to be able to withstand the storms of life. Is that your response to pressure? To remain under the pressure, whatever the pressure might be, in order to mature from it? Jesus is our model. It is said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, these words, Let us run with endurance, same idea, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Don't miss that. Same idea, Romans 5. Rejoice in your sufferings. He, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You say, well, that's Jesus. That's not me. He was perfect. I am not. Well, Do you know what the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9? Although He was a son, He learned obedience by the things He suffered. Yes, he was God in human flesh, but as that young man, confounding his critics, living the life pleasing to God, learned obedience from the things he suffered. And it says, and being made perfect, fully mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How is your endurance? How is your endurance? Are you passing the endurance test. Do you have a joy that is set before you in the endurance of afflictions? We're not talking about stoicism here. We're talking about the production of endurance with abiding joy. That's what we're talking about. And not only is this endurance produced, but Paul goes on in verse 4 to speak about suffering producing character. Do you see it listed there? We rejoice... Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, having the comprehension, living out experientially, suffering producing endurance and endurance producing character. Oh, this is a tremendous concept, my friends. Tremendous. The word character is the word dakime. The verb, dakimazo. It means the idea of testing or approving of something. One of the ways this particular word, this concept was used in the ancient world was the testing or purifying of ancient metals. That's how they would be able to test and then ultimately produce their currency or other precious metals for their use in that society. This metal would go into the refiner's fire and it would be sifted and burned and the intense fire would do its work. And only the true and only the genuine would emerge. Do you see why Paul uses it here? Listen to some of the usages of this particular word about testing, about approving. Regarding forgiveness of others, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you, test, going through the fire of adversity, the fire of suffering, And coming out in the refiner's fire, the other side, tested and genuine, he says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether or not you are obedient in everything. Are you obedient in the matter of forgiveness? There was a man in the church who apparently was repented, apparently wanted to be forgiven, and they were ignoring him. They weren't granting him forgiveness. He says, this is why I'm writing you, whether or not you're going to do the right thing. I'm testing you. Regarding the churches of Macedonia and their generous giving, their financial giving. This is what Paul wrote wrote about them. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. On the part of the Macedonian churches toward Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was poor And Macedonia wasn't hardly any better, but out of the wealth of their poverty, Paul says, in the abundance of joy, in the severe test, he says, of affliction, they gave sacrificially. Is that how you give? 
when the offering plate is passed this morning? Is that going to be your heart, that out of the wealth of your poverty, you will give even the affliction of your life, the abundance of joy is resonating, bubbling up to the top, so that you just want to give to meet needs. He also said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. He says, I'm going to put you in the refiner's fire, and what's going to come out? Are you going to be tested and approved? See, that's character. We could even translate this word in Romans 5, proven character. Tested character. He says, test yourselves, Corinthians, or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you are adakimas, tested and found unworthy? You go through the refiner's fire and you, you are the dross instead of the genuine. I love what he says to Timothy and about Timothy in Philippians 2.22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Same word. Timothy's proven worth. He's tested and found worthy how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I ask you this morning, what kind of sufferings? What kind of afflictions? What kinds of tribulations is God using in order to test your character? Is your character a proven worth like Timothy's? Are you maturing in your faith as the result, the direct result of vicissitudes, challenges, struggles of life? You say, no, they're not. No, they're not. I admit to you that they are not. Well, Paul says, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Don't be discredited. Don't be tested and found unworthy. And it could be that at this point, some within that church at Rome, just like in our own fellowship today, they would be saying, what do I do? What's my response? Paul says, place your faith and hope in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 4. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Oh, could you say like Paul, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Do you have a fear of death? Do you have a fear of what comes after death? The Bible says, if you have a hope, the hope of Jesus Christ in your life, and his soon coming return, if you have that great hope and reality, it says you will purify yourself. You'll have this hope. You'll have this abiding joy. You'll say about the sufferings of life, they're producing something. I'm not focusing in on the sufferings themselves. I'm focusing in on what the sufferings produce. What's the goal? What's the result? I can be motivated to endure anything because I have hope. Remember Abraham in Romans 4? We studied it. He hoped against hope. On what basis? The promise of God. God said, Abraham, by this time next year, you're going to have that son. You trust me. It will happen. I told you. I covenanted with you. I promised you that you will be the father of the faith. There will be nobody who could look at the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky and not see all of your children like them. And Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed against hope, it says. That love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember Paul on his own deathbed being poured out as a drink offering? And he says, I know that God has committed to me this ministry and I have fought the good fight. I have won the battle and there is now laid up for me This crown, the crown which is righteousness, which the righteous judge will give to me on that day. That's hope. That's hope. Not a hope so. Hope. You say, how can he be so sure? How can Paul be so sure? Look at Romans 5.5. And hope does not put us to shame 
Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a magnanimous thought! You say, where's my hope? On what basis? God's love has been poured into your hearts if you're a true believer. That's how you know. That's how you know. That's how you have the confidence. That's how you know that God is working in the characteristic elements of your life. That's how you know that God is producing endurance with and for you. That is how you know you have peace with God. That is how you know you are participating in the state or the realm of grace. That is how you know that there is a future glory that awaits you because God has shed abroad the love of God into your heart. He's lavished it. That's what that word means. Effusive, profuse. God has just poured His love into you time after time after time. And not only at the initial point of your salvation, but He gives you an abiding love. Do you have that love? Do you know the love of Christ? Oh, when I was not walking with Christ, I didn't know that love. I was guilt-ridden. I was confused. I was asking the penetrating questions of life. But when Jesus Christ came into my life, the love of God has been shed abroad. And that is the love for which I continue to this very day. The love of Christ. Isn't that what we just read in Romans 8? The love of Christ. Who can separate us from it? And then he gives all of these superlatives, height and depth, any created thing, nothing at all, nothing in this created universe, nothing. Nothing can separate us from his love. The love of God, it's been poured into us. That's why that hope will not disappoint. You will have no shame when you stand before God. Why? Because he's kept you in his love. Do you know that love? Do you know that love? Abundant, extravagant, effusive, profuse love. And I love the verb form that Paul uses here. It has been given to you and it has continuing effects. You can't be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. You know, this is, by the way, the first time that the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, within these first five chapters, mentions the love of God. First time. But boy, when he starts, he doesn't stop. Look at what he says in verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that love? I close with this. Look in your Bibles at 1 John 5. 1 John 5. You say, I don't... No, I'm not sure. I, I want peace with God. I, I want to participate in, in this grace life. I want to have this hope. I, I want to be enduring in my sufferings. I want proven character. I, I need this hope. Give it to me. I stand on the authority of the Word of God. 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Do you believe in the authority of the Word of God? It's true. It's right here. Couldn't be more simply stated. If you have the Son, you have life. Whoever has it has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Someone says, I want to know then. I want to know. Give me a knowledge. Give me the affirmation. Give me the security. Give me the assurance. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know experiential knowledge, deep knowledge, abiding knowledge. And this is the confidence. You see that. This is the confidence. This is the boldness. This is the assurance that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 
And what is salvation? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, Lord, this is your will. This is your design. This is your plan. That if anyone has the Son, has life. And I want this confidence. And now I'm asking you, according to your will, to hear me. In verse 15, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of Him. You can know, beloved. You can know. This very day, you can know. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in His death and His burial and His resurrection and that He will soon come again. Believe that He's interceding for those who love Him. Believe that now and you will be saved. Oh, Father, I pray today that we would know of this love that no one here would walk away from this place proved through the fires of affliction not to know Christ. Oh, I pray that we would know of this One, the Son of God, and have life in His name. We want confidence that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, He grants us whatever we've asked. And Father, we ask for this assurance now. Please give it to us. If you are seated in this place and you don't have that assurance, ask God to confirm that the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Ask Him to lavish His love upon you. Ask Him to confirm to your heart even through the sufferings of your life, that you have peace with God, you have access into grace, the hope of future glory, endurance and trials, proven character. Lord, we pray that it would be so for your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.